Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, I ask that you'd keep them open to Psalm 150 as we pray together this morning. God, as we open your word today, we seek to hear your voice. We desire to see your face and to have true joy in knowing you and being known by you. Help us to drink deeply from Psalm 150 this morning, to understand it, and to see the difference that it makes in our lives. Lord, it, we're here for your glory, and we ask that you would reveal it this morning. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, as I'm sure you know, there are some parts of the Bible that have been debated since the day they were written. Passages that saints and scholars have puzzled over for thousands of years. There are passages that we come to in our daily reading of Scripture from time to time that make us scratch our heads and wonder what in the world God might be saying to us through this part of the Bible. The passage we're looking at this morning is not one of those passages. I doubt anyone has ever read Psalm 150 and afterwards said that they didn't know what God was saying through it. The message, it seems, is clear. After reading the word praise 13 times in only six verses, it's hard to miss the main point here. It serves as the final anthem in the Bible's songbook, a fitting conclusion to the collection as a whole, because the Psalms are the songs of worship that God has given to his people, songs that fit every circumstance in life. Whether we are in trial or in triumph, a season of peace, a time of deliverance, or desperately waiting for it, The Psalms together proclaim one message for all of God's people throughout all of history, and it is this, praise the Lord. That is the central message of the book as a whole, and after after we get to the end of it, chapter 150 serves as the exclamation point at the end of that sentence. So I guess I could just wrap up there then, since we know what Psalm 150 is about. We could all go home about 30 minutes early. But even though the main point of this psalm is plain for everyone to see. There is still a lot to learn from it. Fortunately, it's easy for us to dig a little deeper into this psalm by noticing that in a very short space, it answers all six of the journalistic questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how are all answered for us in this short six verses. And we will look at each one, one by one, before examining what difference they make, this psalm makes in our lives today. Well, the what, I think, is obvious, praise. It's the imperative that opens and closes this short song. And a simple 
but theologically accurate definition of praise is that it is the act that flows out of the feeling of joy. It is joy in action. Though we often describe the musical parts of our church service as praise, it is certainly much bigger than that. It is the act that accompanies delighting in God. That's the idea behind David's words in Psalm 37 when he encouraged each of his people to delight yourself in the Lord. In fact, we could even go so far as to say that true worship is not possible without delight. John Piper, in his classic book, Desiring God, writes, God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. Praise is not an alternative to joy, but the expression of joy. And as we declared together this morning in our New City Catechism, question six, joy is a critical part of how we glorify God, simply by enjoying Him. It's not something, I would say, that we have to learn how to do. We might learn intentional habits of praise or skills that equip us to praise, like learning how to play an instrument, but praise itself as the expression of delight is something hardwired into the heart of every human being who has ever lived. No one has to teach a baby to smile when they see their mother walk into the room. It happens naturally. No one has to be taught to love their favorite food or their favorite book because we were designed to love and to have joy. We were made for it. God made us with a longing for joy and with the capacity to rejoice when we find it. And that pursuit shapes all of life. C.S. Lewis wrote that the world rings with, play, with praise. Readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines and dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. And just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it's magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Whether it's a good book, a trustworthy friend, or the creator of the universe, we praise what brings us joy, and we worship what we treasure. All people do, and we do it without having to learn how. The issue is that we often settle for imitations of the real thing. Though we were designed to find true and lasting joy in God himself, we settle for the happiness that we find in things that ought to point us to him. It's like saying the favorite part of your vacation was the airport. So the psalmist says, praise the Lord. That is the joy that you were made for. The what that the psalmist is talking about is clear from the very start. But hidden in the first line is also the answer to when. The command to praise God was written, we notice, in the present tense, so that no matter when someone reads these words, they will apply. There is no time, no season of life, when it is not appropriate and right to praise God. And the writer of this psalm makes that point 12 more times, each time using that same grammatical signpost to remind readers that right now is the time to praise God. Afterward, he explains where to praise God. 
in his sanctuary, and in his mighty heavens, we read in verse 1. The original readers of this poem would probably have thought of the temple itself in ancient Israel. It was the place where God dwelt with his people and where people made sacrifices and atoned for their sin before God. It was the center of religious practice and culture for the Israelites. Praise in the temple involves the assembly of God's people gathered together in the presence of God, so it makes sense for the psalmist to single it out as the appropriate place for praise. But rather than saying temple, he says sanctuary, which is literally the place of God's holiness, the place sanctified by the presence of God. So while it is definitely right to praise God in the temple, Psalm 150 is careful to establish that praise is not restricted to a particular building. In fact, it's not confined at all. Readers, uh, we read here, are to praise him in his mighty heavens. This Hebrew term does not suggest some heavenly realm beyond our own. The psalmist is not envisioning some cloudy landscape with babies floating around playing harps. The word heavens that's used here is actually the same one that's used way back in Genesis for the expanse that God made on the second day of creation. It was the first thing that he created after light, and it refers in Hebrew to everything that exists in the sky over our heads. The vast, unimaginably broad, immeasurable expanse of the heavens demonstrate the might of God. And the point here, a reference to this here, is to make the point that there is no place even in the furthest, most remote corner of the universe where God's worthiness to be praised does not reach. There is no place that is not his sanctuary and nowhere that his presence does not dwell. So the psalmist's point is clear. Everywhere that one might go is where God ought to be praised. Then he moves to the question of why to praise God, which is a question that people have wrestled with for a long time. If I were to expect and even demand praise from you, you would rightly be concerned about my character, maybe my sanity. You would see me as a spoiled, entitled narcissist. Any person who demands praise is hardly worthy of it. So why should we accept when God does that? Is he being a spoiled and entitled narcissist when he demands the praise of his people, not only during their lifetimes, but for all eternity afterward? Many people have struggled with this question. What sort of God is so needy and so vain that he demands constant praise, they wonder? That God is hardly worthy of any worship at all, and I agree with them. A God who needs people and who needs their praise is not much of a God at all. But Scripture has a good answer for us for this question and this concern, and we see it here in Psalm 150. Praise him for his mighty deeds, we read. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. The writer summarizes why God deserves praise by pointing first to what he has done and then second to who he is. Mighty deeds might describe many things. The psalmist has just described creation as the work of God's might, so perhaps he is still thinking about, about that and saying something like, God ought to be praised because he made everything, including us. That's the point made in Revelation 4, which we've already looked at this morning, when kings worship God by saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for 
You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But there is more that makes God worthy of praise. Psalm 107 says, Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. So here, in Psalm 107, it is God's faithfulness and grace expressed in steadfast, covenant-keeping love that is the reason to praise Him. It is God's character that makes Him praiseworthy. The writer of Psalm 150 has all of this in view, I think, declaring the excellent greatness of, of God, the infinite goodness of God that has been revealed in history. So in answering why the psalmist calls for people to praise God, is the, that we, we see the reminder that there is nothing more worthy and no source of greater joy that breaks into more true praise than God Himself. So it is not any need of God's that calls for praise. It is our need that God answers by calling us to praise. His calls for people to praise Him are calls of love, because He is where people find the joy that they were literally designed for. That, I think, is why the psalmist says that people are to praise God according to His excellent greatness. A writer might have said, praise Him because of his excellent greatness, which would be fine, and that would make sense. We read that exact line of reasoning elsewhere in Scripture, and in fact, that's the way that this verse is translated in, in some English versions of Scripture. But he says, according to, praise God, according to his excellent greatness, which only makes sense if we understand that people should praise God not out of obligation or, or coercion, but because he is supremely satisfying. The more we know Him, the more we will enjoy Him, and the more we will express that joy in praise. Another fitting translation might be, praise Him proportionately with His glory, which is to say, entirely. Our praise is always proportionate with how much we treasure the thing that we're praising. Just like the more that we love a book, the more we will want to talk about it and read it again and think about the characters in the story and, and encourage other people to read it, but unlike a good book, there will always be more of God's goodness for us to discover. We will never get to the bottom of it. So people are called to praise Him according to His greatness. And then the psalmist moves on to explain how God ought to be worshipped. It's worth noticing that half of this psalm's total length Verses 3, 4, and 5 are dedicated to answering this question. People are to praise God with loud trumpets, lutes, and harps, and tambourines, and dancing, and stringed instruments, and wind instruments, and loud cymbals. It's quite a list. Psalmist lists what must have been a whole ancient symphony. Is the point here that these are the only acceptable means of worship? That God doesn't hear us if we aren't using a, a trumpet or a crashing cymbal? Well, I'm sure that someone has read these verses that way. I don't think that that's what's happening here at all. We are missing the point. If we read these verses and think that Drew needs to start dancing around up here on the platform during our worship services, although I am not ruling that out. <laughs> but I do think that these verses help, help us get at two important points. 
First, music plays a really important role in how we praise God. Every one of the means of worship that's listed here is either for making music or works along with music. And the psalm itself, which is a song, is to be set to music. Many of the psalms discuss the role of singing in our worship. The Apostle Paul clearly prioritized it in his own life and ministry. When he was imprisoned in Acts 16, we read that he and his companion Silas were singing hymns in their jail cell. And when he wrote to believers in Colossae, he advised them to let the, the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Scripture affirms over and over and over again the role that music plays in worship, even for people like me who can't carry a tune in a bucket. This is, this is a tool that God has given us for our good. In their book on worship, Keith and Kristen Getty, who have written many of the songs that we, we sing regularly here together at Westgate, uh, they write that congregational singing is one of the greatest and most beautiful tools that we have been given to declare God's excellencies, strengthening His church and sharing His glory with the world. So music is, by God's design, a tool that helps us express the glory of God for our own spiritual growth and to share it with the world at large. But beyond that, I think the psalmist is getting at something else here that maybe is a little bit less obvious. Praise ought to engage our hearts. It's not a box that we check off of our daily schedule, our daily to-do list. And the way that the psalmist makes this point might be a little bit hard to see in English. One of the most interesting features of Hebrew is a way of writing verbs that intensifies them. So if you're writing the word eat, you could write it in this special form, and it wouldn't mean just eat, it would mean devour. It's a really unique and cool feature that doesn't show up all that often, but when it does, it intensifies whatever action is being described. And the writer of Psalm 150 uses that tool, that little grammatical feature of Hebrew, every single time he writes the word praise in this psalm. So when we read praise the Lord, it does not mean just go through the motions. It means pour your heart out before your holy God in joyful satisfaction with him. And music is a tool that God has given us to help us do that. Lastly, the writer of the Psalms notes who should praise the Lord. And the answer is simple. Every living thing. The psalmist's hope is both that God would be more glorified and that all people would have an everlasting reason to rejoice. Because there is no one and nothing that does not owe God praise and no one whose joy is complete apart from Him. It's a comprehensive and total call for everyone to have abundant and eternal joy in God's holiness expressed in praise. So we know what, where, when, why, how, and who these words apply to. The main point of Psalm 150 is hard to miss, and it makes a difference in our lives and minds the more that we consider it. So in the time we have remaining, I'd like to note a few of them, six actually, which sounds like a lot, but we're going to move through them relatively quickly. First, to praise God, we must know him. 
I don't simply mean that we need to know that he exists. There are people all over the world who know that the world has a creator and, do, and who do not worship him. Demons even acknowledge the Son of God, but certainly did not worship him. What I mean is that we need to know his heart if we are truly to rejoice in him. I'm guessing that some of you are like me and that you've done more shopping online in the last 12 months than in the whole rest of your life put together. And one of the things I, I guess that I've discovered that I actually like about uh, shopping online is customer reviews. Other people that go on and offer their thoughts about the thing I'm thinking about buying. And the most helpful reviews are the ones written by people with lots of experience with the item that you're looking at. It would not be helpful at all if someone wrote, I've never used this toaster before, but it looks great. That review would obviously be pointless. Even though that person is giving praise to the toaster that I'm looking at, their praise is meaningless because they have no real experience with it at all. The people who have experience, who know and understand the features, who have made dozens and dozens of pieces of toast, who know all about the quality of the toaster and the toast that it makes, those are the people whose opinions matter most. In order to praise God, we must know him. When Jesus stopped to visit a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, he told her first that she did not know God, but that a day was coming when she would. And then he said to her in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, scholars have long debated what exactly Jesus meant when he said that people must worship God in spirit and truth, and there are lots of different perspectives on that, but what's clear is that Jesus tells this woman that worship ought to correspond to God's nature and glory. Jesus is telling her that to rightly worship God, we ought to do our best to know him, to understand him, in order to worship him accordingly. Of course, none of us will ever fully comprehend God, and that is not the point. Instead, I think Jesus is, is explaining that praise should be shaped by what we know about God, about his excellent greatness, and that if we don't know him well, if we do not know God, we will wind up praising the God of our imagination. We will praise something, but it will not be the God of the Bible. So theology Careful searching of the scriptures is a crucial part of worship because more, the more that we come to know God, the more we will enjoy him and the more we will joyfully declare his goodness in our praise. Second, praise is never conditional. There is nothing in Psalm 150 that suggests that there are times in life that praise is called for and other times when it is not. Many of the Psalms are examples to us of people praising God in the midst of hardship and loss and fear. And we should take note of that. In his first epistle, the apostle Peter writes to Christians who were suffering, we read, what he described as various trials. Yet with all of eternity ahead of them, secured for them by Christ, they were able to look past their suffering to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, as Peter says. That is not a grumbling, going through the motions type of praise. That's not how these people come before God. Even in the middle of persecution and abuse and various hardships, they fall before God with joy 
that can't even be contained in human language. It is so great. They are, waiting, they, are, they, they are not waiting for God to remove the obstacles in their lives before they praise God. Their, their joy is simply too great to wait on that. There are definitely times in life, I'm sure you'll agree, when we do not feel the joy that leads to praise. There are mornings we wake up and our heart is just not in it. Maybe because of some stressful situation we're in or some tragedy that we are facing. We all know what that's like. And our natural instinct is to let those circumstances govern our habits, to shape the way that we come before the Lord or whether we will do so at all. But nowhere in this psalm or anywhere else in Scripture do we read that we should praise God only on the days when things are good and we are happy. The point that Scripture makes and this psalm makes so clearly for us is that God ought to be praised because He is praiseworthy. Suffering will still come. Life will still be full of difficulties and stress, but God will still be praiseworthy because he will still be good. And the question we should ask the next time circumstances in life diminish our joy in the goodness of God is whether we really love him or the circumstances in our lives that made it easy to worship him. I'm going to say that one more time. The question that we should ask when the circumstances in our lives diminish the joy that we have in the goodness of God is whether we really love him or the circumstances in our lives that made it easy to worship him. Third, praise is not about me. This psalm helps confront a tendency that we all have to treat worship like a performance for which we are audience members. Without thinking about it, we often talk about looking for a church where we fit and where we feel fed and where we like the general vibe. We talk about finding a church home like we're buying a car. It's got to have the features that we want. It needs to be about the right age. It needs to be the right color. And it should fit our lifestyle. When it comes to the actual worship service itself, we can easily find ourselves thinking more about style than substance. We want a church that fits our preferences, whether it is for hymns or for rock music, for ruggedly handsome preachers or smoke machines and lasers. It can be easy to let our preferences dictate whether or not we will worship God at all. That's why Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that people would soon reject the preaching of truth to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. But worship is not about our preferences. Psalm 150 leaves no room for interpretation. Praise is toward God. It is in God's place. It is according to God's glory, and it is the result of having joy in God himself. So we would be better served when thinking about a church home by asking questions about where God's word is being preached and where God's people are truly praising him, whether or not it fits our preferences for style. Fourth, praise is the goal of faith. This psalm does not give any instructions for life before a holy God other than to praise him. There is nothing here other than to behold the goodness of God and to respond to it rightly. That's it. That's the goal of the whole of Christian life and life with God, even though we often make it a lot more complicated than that. Many people tend to think of the Bible as a rule book or as a set of instructions from God. 
And if that is what we think about the word that God has given to the world, then it will not take long for us to begin to think of the Bible as a restrictive and out-of-date ball and chain that just holds us down. It will hardly be a source of joy. But Scripture itself paints a very different picture, and Psalm 150 helps us to see it. The Bible is where we truly come to know God, to behold His glory, and to deeply appreciate His love and grace for us. It is where God reveals His character, His mighty deeds, and His excellent greatness, to quote from our passage. And coming to know and joyfully respond to what God has revealed about Himself is the goal of faith and a relationship with God. Here at the end of the Bible's longest book, there are no instructions about how to live, no rules about what is permissible for God's people. Instead, there is only this repeated refrain to praise God who is worthy. That objective should shape the way we think about what it means to know God, and it certainly should shape the way that we think about what it means to share our faith with others. In the opening of his classic book on mission work, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper writes that missions is not the main goal of the church. That might be strange, considering that he's opening a book on Christian missions. But he writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. There will come a time when the call to share the gospel with the nations will be no more, but the call to fall before God in praise never will. There will come a time when the law that reveals God's character will be unnecessary because God's people will see him face to face, but a day will never come when God will cease to be praiseworthy. It is the eternal and everlasting destiny of God's people to have joy so complete that the desire of their hearts will be to declare God's holiness and glory and love and goodness. Fifth, God cares about how we praise him, not just that we praise him. There is no instruction in this passage, I'm sure you'll notice, about whether or not to use smoke machines in worship. But we shouldn't assume that that means there is no guidance in Scripture for what God permits and expects and even commands in worship. We see some of them right here in Psalm 150. God's people should gather. God has given us music as a tool for expressing our joy in Him. Praise is not a concert, and we are not audience members. And the center and unbending, unchanging root of worship ought to be knowing God, who He is, and what He's done. Those are things that we discover in Scripture. So our praise should be full of preaching God's Word, singing God's Word, praying God's Word, and all according to what we discover in God's Word. And God loves us enough to say that these things matter because His glory and our joy are at stake in them. Lastly, praise is not quid pro quo. Psalm 150 makes clear Praise is our response to God, not our attempt to get him on our side. This is a crucial point because it conflicts with the way that we most naturally think about knowing God. 
Every other religious system in the world, in the history of humanity, thinks of God or the gods as someone to appease in order to win favor. But the God of Scripture doesn't work that way. Instead, he comes to his people who have utterly rejected him and scorned him and his holiness. He shows them mercy and affection that is wholly unearned. And he promises them that he will redeem them, even though doing so will come at an immeasurable cost to himself. So when Jesus came to fulfill these promises, it was not because any person had ever appeased God and won his favor. It was because he is the God who saves, even when those he calls to salvation are rebels against his holiness. And when Christ was hung on the cross, it was not because any of us deserved for him to take our place. It was because his glory is revealed in his grace. Praise is not what brings God to love us. We're mistaken if we think that praising God earns us some credit that we can turn in with God when we need a favor later on. Psalm 150 helps us hear the greatest calling that any of us will ever receive. Praise is not what brings, us, brings God to love us. God's love is what brings us to praise him. And he gives us the tools to carry it out. He does all this, not to burden us under the vanity of a needy God, but to give us the desire of our hearts that we were destined and designed to long for, the goodness of God that satisfies more deeply and more truly than any other treasure we might discover in this life. So let us, along with the psalmist, declare that God is worthy of our praise because he is our joy. And as we share our faith with the world, we know that it's not an invitation to, to groveling subservience to a God who cracks the whip, but to have a joy that we were designed for and that satisfies more than any other. Let us go into this world with joy, to share it and the hope that it brings so that every living thing might praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, we are gathered in this place. We are together, whether we are virtual and connected online or we are together in this room, we are together as one and unified as a church family called by your grace and united in your gospel for the sake of your glory. You alone are worthy of worship and we rejoice in you alone. We ask that you would cause us to know you more to see you more clearly, and to find in you a greater treasure than we might find anywhere else. And we ask that you would equip us to share that joy with others. May the peoples praise you, God, for your glory and your grace. We ask these things in the name of your Son, who is our Savior. Amen.